Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty. This week, I have a meaty middle about how to use adverbs properly, a quick and dirty tip about the difference between noisy and noisome, a tidbit about why we say someone has the receipts, and another tidbit about the term case quarter, because I got carried away. Let's start with adverbs. Recently, Grammar Girl listener Lori Kehoe sent an interesting question. She asked, is it possible for one adverb to modify multiple verbs? For example, the child quickly ran and hid under the porch. I have a student who labeled quickly as modifying both ran and hid. I'm inclined to mark it as correct, even though the book says that quickly simply modifies ran. Lori, you were right to question the book. The sentence is ambiguous. Let's listen to it again. The child quickly ran and hid under the porch. It's ambiguous because it's not entirely clear whether quickly modifies both the verbs that follow it. It might. In that case, the child quickly ran and quickly hid. Or it might not. In that case, the child ran quickly and then hid. Hid at a normal pace, perhaps looking around carefully to find the perfect spot. In this case, I'd lean toward the meaning your student sensed, because it's definitely a legitimate possibility that the child both ran and hid quickly. That's because in English, the scope of a modifier tends to extend to all the words that follow it. Let's take a sentence like, I always pack a lunch and eat at my desk. The adverb always would generally be understood as extending to both verbs, I always pack a lunch, and always eat at my desk. However, in a sentence like, I randomly grabbed a bagel and stuffed it into my mouth, it's implied that you were so hungry you'd grab anything at hand, however random. But we never stuff food in, say, our armpit, so randomly is understood intuitively to describe grabbed but not stuffed. In either case, if you want to avoid confusion, you can always clarify your sentence. I always pack a lunch and sometimes eat at my desk, for example. Or, I randomly grabbed a bagel and deliberately placed it in my mouth. Most of the time, it's not a big deal, and people will know what you mean. But rewriting can become important if you're writing something that needs to be precise, like instructions or legal documents. This tendency of modifiers to extend to the words that follow them doesn't just happen with adverbs. It also happens with adjectives. 
Here's an example. Today at the clinic, we're treating flea-bitten dogs and cats. Are the dogs and cats both flea-bitten? The sentence is ambiguous, but it seems to suggest they are. If that's not what you mean, you'll want to rephrase the sentence. Today at the clinic, we're treating cats and several flea-bitten dogs. Here's another example. She wore a fuzzy jacket and high heels to the dance. Okay, a reader would probably assume that only the jacket was fuzzy, not the high heels, too. But to be safe, you could reword the sentence. She wore high heels and a fuzzy jacket to the dance. The kind of ambiguity created by these sentences is known in linguistics as structural ambiguity. It exists when the different parts of a phrase could be arranged in more than one way, yielding more than one meaning. Structural linguistics explores the fact that the meaning of sentences is not based only on the meaning of individual words. It's also based on the order of those words, the structure of the sentence. Consider these two sentences. The dog bit the man. The man bit the dog. Both contain the same words, but when you change the order of the words, you completely change the meaning. When there's a possibility for confusion, there's usually a possibility for humor, and the Department of Linguistics at the University of Pennsylvania keeps a list of funny sentences and headlines, intentional and unintentional, that come from structural ambiguity. One classic joke you maybe have heard before comes from Groucho Marx, who said, One morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got into my pajamas, I'll never know. That joke uses structural ambiguity because the prepositional phrase, in my pajamas, could describe how the shooter was dressed, but it could also describe the location of the elephant. Because headline writers are often trying to cram information into a headline, they're an easy place to find unintentionally funny juxtapositions or words that could have two meanings. And the pen site has many, including, he found God at the end of his rope, Killer sentenced to die for second time in 10 years. And Lansing residents can drop off trees. Look out below! (laughs) So, what's your takeaway from this segment? Remember this. In English, the scope of a modifier tends to extend to the words that follow it. So be careful writing a sentence like, She wildly drove to the hospital and operated on the patient unless you really mean that the doctor both drove and operated wildly. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Tito's Handmade Vodka had been mixed with its fair share of cocktails. But one night, a chilled glass topped with lime and cranberry would change everything this bottle knew about happy hour. From the producers of America's Favorite Vodka, it turns out the cocktail you've been waiting for was right there the whole time. The Tito's Rom Cosmo. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll sip with Tito's. Coming to cocktail parties near you at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. 
Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Next, what's the difference between noisy and noisome? The big trouble here is that noisome has nothing to do with noise, but sometimes people think it does. Noisome sounds like noisy, but that's not what it means. A noisome problem offends your nose, not your ears. It means offensive or disgusting, but is used almost exclusively to describe smells. Here's an example from an 1874 book called Tiny Travelers. There's a good deal of mud deposited at the bottom of the canals, which, when disturbed by barges, produces a most noisome effluvium. And it's not a coincidence that the example is from the 1800s, because noisome is falling out of favor. A Google Book search shows that it was used much more often in the early 1800s and has been in steady decline ever since. So your quick and dirty tip is to remember that noisome means stinky. And don't use noisome in a sentence where a misinformed reader could interpret it to mean noisy. And these days, unless you're going for a pompous or old-timey sound, noisy is almost always the word you want. And now, on to receipts. If you've ever had to return something that you bought from a store or get reimbursed for expenses from a business trip, you're well familiar with the idea of saving receipts as proof that you really did buy what you say you bought. The receipt is a slip of paper given to you by the merchant, stating that they received money from you in exchange for the goods or services that you bought. But there's a somewhat different meaning that's been gaining in popularity for a few years. It really took off in the summer of 2016 with a boost from a public fight involving the pop star Taylor Swift, the rapper Kanye West, and his wife Kim Kardashian, who of course is famous in her own right. In February of that year, West had released a rap with a couple of lines about Swift that ranged from merely disrespectful to bluntly misogynistic. Swift took offense. West claimed that he had talked with her about the lines before releasing the song and she had given her permission. Swift denied it. Finally, in mid-July, Kardashian posted a montage of video clips on Snapchat showing West talking with Swift on speakerphone, apparently having the very conversation that West had referred to. In an article on Vox.com, reporter Alex Abad-Santos wrote that Kardashian had, quote, released the most damning pop music receipts in recent memory. Taylor Swift lied about Kanye West, and there's video to prove it, unquote. You can also find plenty of tweets referring to Kardashian's, quote, receipts. So how exactly is a video a receipt of anything? The answer is that this sense of the word receipts has undergone some semantic broadening. In other words, its meaning has become more general. Rather than referring strictly to documents confirming purchases, receipts can now also refer to any kind of documentation that proves you're right about something, whether it's an actual receipt, a screenshot of an incriminating text message, 
or video footage of a conversation. In the Vox article, Abad Santos also provides the origin of this meaning shift, pointing to an interview of another pop star in 2002, namely Whitney Houston. She was interviewed by Diane Sawyer, who asked about Houston's problems with drug addiction, and in particular a newspaper headline claiming that Houston had once spent $730,000 on crack. Houston's response was, quote, I want to see the receipts from the drug dealer that I bought $730,000 worth of drugs from. I want to see the receipts, unquote. If you're thinking, I didn't know drug dealers handed out receipts, you're right. Of course they don't. Katie Waldman, a reporter for Slate.com, took on this angle in another article from July 2016, written for the Lexicon Valley blog. Quote, it was a subversive taunt. Houston called up the specter of the missing receipts to poke fun at Sawyer's impotence. She wasn't so much clearing her name as luxuriating in immunity, unquote. In yet another article published in the summer of 2016, Seiya Rankin of E! Online noted that Houston's quotation had become so popular it had joined other famous lines that have changed from their original phrasing, such as, play it again, Sam, and we don't need no stinking badges. She wrote, quote, Slowly but surely, I want to see the receipts, was changed to show me the receipts, presumably because it just rolls off the tongue a bit easier. Cut to the summer of 2016, and it's perhaps the most ubiquitous comeback we have at our disposal, unquote. Katie Waldman fills in some more of the history of receipts as any kind of proof between the Houston interview and the words emergence into the spotlight in the summer of 2016. If you're interested, you can find her article and the other two linked in the transcript of this podcast at quickanddirtytips.com. You can also find many examples of receipts with this new meaning collected in the May 2017 issue of the American Dialect Society's journal American Speech in their Among the New Words column. Waldman also has one final observation to offer about receipts. She notes that this usage, quote, like most U.S. slang, has flourished especially in Black vernaculars, unquote. This is something to keep in mind if you're inclined to make this new sense of receipts part of your active vocabulary and you don't happen to be African American. It's not just a fun and playful piece of slang. Part of its character comes from being created and used by people who historically haven't had an easy time being believed by those in positions of power. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, who's an independent writer and consultant specializing in language and grammar. He blogs at literalminded.wordpress.com and tweets at literalminded. Finally, hello to Andrea, who listens to the podcast on her bus ride home every night in New York City, but went to college in the South, where her roommates would ask her if she had a case quarter. She'd never heard of such a thing, and neither had I, until she asked about it. It turns out a case quarter means a quarter, a 25-cent piece as opposed to other coins that make up 25 cents. For example, if you're on your way to do the laundry, you want a case quarter, not two dimes and a nickel. Apparently, case can go with other denominations, too. So you can ask for a case dime, a case nickel, or even a case dollar. And this is indeed something you're only likely to hear in the American South. The Dictionary of American Regional English pinpoints it specifically to South Carolina. And in fact, one of the few recent examples I could find comes from an article in the Island Packet, 
a news site headquartered in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. The writer describes the offerings on the grave of author Pat Conroy, probably best known for writing the novel The Prince of Tides, like this, quote, Several guardian angel coins lie among pennies, dimes, and a case quarter or two, unquote. But still, why case? Well, it probably comes from British and Australian slang, where a caser is another name for a crown, which is a single coin worth five shillings. The Oxford English Dictionary says caser, in turn, might come from the Hebrew word for crown, that in Ashkenazic is pronounced keser. The OED also says that in the early 1900s, some Americans called a dollar a caser. Here's an example from a poem called The Glory of War by Alfred Damon Runyon, published in the American Magazine in 1907. Left step, left step, why do men desert? Thirteen casers every month, pants and hat and shirt. Further, the Dictionary of American Regional English says that in South Carolina, caser was another name for a silver dollar. So thanks, Andrea, for the interesting question. Hello also to Gussie, who listens while driving, and thank you also to Sese, The Little Light, Ma at SJ, and The Nothingness, who left reviews for my books at Amazon.com. Book reviews there really help, so if you like a book, whether it was mine or somebody else's, know that you're doing the author a huge favor if you leave a book review. I particularly harangue my father to leave reviews for all the free books he gets. It was free. Give the author something nice in return. That's my little soapbox. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook as Grammar Girl, and you can find all my old articles and podcasts at quickanddirtytips.com. That's all. Thanks for listening. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart 
every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.